So, I'm writing a novel. It's the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and, when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like me making them a really nice grilled cheese. I eat it, but I think about you while I do so. And if you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other far more meaningful <laughs> perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. There's literally audiobook chapters of my entire first two novels with behind the scenes stuff that I provide on the writing of the novels. And that's just one of the things you can get. So I think it's a pretty good deal, in my unbiased opinion. Last time I spoke with Sean Korsgaard all about promotion. And this time we're going back to the world of writing in particular. See, good old world building, that comes up all the time, doesn't it? Especially, of course, when you're talking about genre writing, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, and so on, mostly sci-fi fantasy. And I thought it would be kind of fun to talk with someone who, for close to a decade now, has been teaching and giving talks basically on the subject of world building, and who has just come out with a new book that's kind of like a combination instructional booklet and work booklet to help you plot out all the world building for your big saga that you want to tell. This is returning champion of the podcast, Jess Fry. And without further ado, let's uh, get into that interview and hear what she has to say. Oh, actually, there is a little bit further ado. I think I accidentally picked the wrong microphone or something, so apologies in advance. The audio on my side of this is not as good as it usually is. I'll sound a little bit like I'm down a well, and sometimes it'll sound like there's a tiny woodpecker just hammering away. I don't know what's up with that. I minimized it as much as I could in post, and it should be all right. But yeah, that's a thing. It's not anything wrong with your earbuds or whatever. But yeah, there's nothing to diminish the quality of what Jess has to say. And you might want to hang around for a little bit after the interview because there will be some special announcements regarding the podcast and other fun things. But for now, that's plenty of ado. Let's get to the interview. Jess. Hi, Jess. Hi, Oliver. Good morning. Morning. Welcome back. You are, I think, only my second return. No, wait. No, Matt came on twice. And Matt came on twice. What? Maybe this isn't that special. Maybe I'm not that special. Let's move on. I'm going to come back. Yeah, I was going to say, so what you were about to say was something to make me special. And then you were just like, no, actually, you're not special. Yeah, well, that's what I bring to uh, guests and friendships. <laughs> that's what makes like, me special. But you're not that special. <laughs> what makes me special is coming out of something not special. Speaking of special, <laughs> um, I think one of the fun things about world building is that it really ties into earliest childhood. You know, probably you don't think of it as that when you're like four or five and you've got crayons and a giant big sheet, but boy, you like just building the world. For fun to get us into you know into this, do you remember the earliest experience you had, not with writing in general, but world building with a capital W? What, what was that like? Kind of. I mean, I, until you said it, I wouldn't have considered it world building. Kids, of course, engage in elastic play, 
So it's where they take concepts from their everyday life and they stretch them and they inhabit them and they change them to reflect their own personal circumstances. This is where you get kids playing on the playground as the Ninja Turtles comes from. But I wouldn't call that their own world building. Um, that's, of course, kids playing with someone else's world building. So I actually have to think about this for a second because, like, I played a lot of My Little Ponies in the cornfield at my grandparents' house. But I, I would have to say it would be like playing house with my friends. Somebody has a baby doll and you're the husband, you're the wife, you're the bratty sister. Um, we're going to put the baby to sleep. And I think, yeah, maybe that's probably like the first, the first real example of world building in play mm -hmm. that I had was, was hanging out with friends at, you know, like five, six and, and playing house was probably, huh. I've, I've never thought about that. Like I, I could tell you the first time I sat down and tried to world build to write a story. I know exactly when and where that was. Mm -hmm. Also at my grandparents' house uh, on lined paper with a pencil when I was supposed to be downstairs for Christmas. <laughs> I was instead upstairs in the attic writing a story about vampire Nazis. <laughs> but in terms of like as a child coming up with my own world and my own mythology and my own yeah, I I think it would be playing house for me. Yeah, I, I like I like that a lot. I must have been I, I wasn't sure about that question last night, and then I was like, you know, I remember being a kid myself, and I don't remember how, but we got these massive sheets of butcher block paper, just like must have been like three feet high by four feet wide or something like that. And I would start in the bottom left corner, a friend would start in the bottom right, and we would just like take turns drawing and adding things to a world that we would build on this blank page, and like build stories around the characters and of course eventually they start shooting and blowing each other up because we're boys growing up back in the day but uh, but yeah I was just thinking you know yeah we did actually a lot of just like building our little worlds even outside of the franchise toys that absolutely have... mm -hmm. I never thought He-Man would still be around by the time I was 40 <laughs> the, the sort of undyingness of the franchises of when I was a little boy <laughs> still surprises me but that's not what we're here to talk about yeah just like I say that sort of I like the way you put that elastic uh, play yeah like I was thinking that, that feels like the earliest world building we all kind of get into and I think it's one of the reasons why we still you know, even if we don't consider ourselves you know a writer uh, I think everybody to some degree enjoys that uh, when they're older which brings me to my second question which is a funny one at the beginning but here we are how much world building is enough world building. Oh. We all know or have been at times that writer who fills endless notebooks with world building yet never actually writes the story. So there's a twofold answer to this question. There's A, there's no such thing as too much world building. <laughs> Fill notebook after notebook after notebook. I mean, that's why I wrote the book that I did. The, the hope is that people will buy it fill it with one world, write that book, and then buy it again, fill it with a new world and write that book. And then that way, every it's right there in your hand and on your shelf. So you don't have to worry about, oh my God, where did my notes go? It's all right there in the book. There's no such thing as too much world building. However, here's the second part of it. Once the world building A, impedes your ability to write the story, and B, impedes your reader's ability to understand the story, then you've hit the too much waterline. Because world building is all well and good, but it's a separate mental intellectual exercise. 
And you know what? There are people who are paid to world build. That is their whole job. And that's great. If that's what you want to do, it, great, fabulous. Go start writing D&D campaigns. If that's what you want to do for a living, if the world building is the part of the storytelling that gets you most excited and gets you most engaged, there are ways to turn that into a career or there are ways to turn that into a beloved hobby if you don't feel like monetizing it. But if you are a writer and all you're focusing on is the world building, the minute the minutia of the world building gets in the way of your ability to tell a story, then that's too much. And then again, as a reader, the, the minute I have to stop, at least in my opinion, stop reading your prose, flip to the front of the book and look through 7,000 pages of character names and maps to figure out who I'm talking to and what the heck is happening, I'm less likely to then flip back to where I was in the prose and continue. And a lot of people do love glossaries and things like that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the glossary and God bless Terry Pratchett and his footnotes, but the minute what you're doing makes it difficult for the reader to follow the story and understand what's happening, then you've gone too far. Yeah, I, I dig footnotes because they at least keep you on the page, but having to go to a glossary or some other reference section, appendices, it feels kind of like when you're reading an article online and then midway through a paragraph, there's a hyperlink taking you somewhere else and then you click that and you're somewhere else. And like, and now I'm somewhere was else. the article interesting enough to bring you back? You know, maybe not. Yeah, well, and when the world building is so stuffed into the prose that you have no idea what anyone's talking about, like the thing with world building is, is sometimes less is more. And um, I have an author friend, Adrian Kress, who always says that she prefers to sprinkle world building like salt on the top of a story um, and let people infer from, from the, you know, the, the, the salt is the base of the flavor profile and... <laughs> And, you know, you can infer what comes after that yourself, because if you have a paragraph filled with what are essentially replacement nonsense words, and it's in a 10 word sentence, it's eight nonsense words that you've made up for your world building, unless you've very strongly established those those replacement words in the 10 chapters that came before that, if you're offering me a language that I can't read, I'm, I'm, I'm closing the book because I can't read what you've given me. Yeah, and I think um, your friend's advice is pretty strong, the inference thing. I just makes me think of the, the old Saw Wars with horror, how, you know, the, the boogeyman you imagine in the shadows is scarier than the one usually shown under bright lights on camera. And, like, getting just a, a hint of the world and you imagine something beyond it tends to be, I think, more how we get sucked into it than reading a textbook, let's say. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, personally for me, when I world build, I do do all the work. I do answer all the questions. I, I do do 270 pages of notes and then I go and sprinkle things in like salt. So for me, I trust my reader to be smart enough to infer what I want inferred if I just put in this one sentence. So I don't feel the need to stop the prose or the action or the scene to explain how faster than light drive works or explain, for example, in my novel Triptych, how the flasher works so people travel back and forth in time i know how it works well more or less um because i invented it and my characters understand how it works because one of them's a scientist and he makes one and he needs to know how it works but the pov character has no idea how it works and it doesn't matter because it's a plot device it's 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 a uh 
portable plot device with a big red button on it on purpose. Um, and I believe that my readership is intelligent enough and engaged enough to go, it works because it works. I accept this moving on. But those who looked more closely at the prose would get a better explanation of how it worked. It just wasn't relevant to the plot. Other than the two extremes of never starting the actual story, mm -hmm. or creating a shallow secondary world that may as well be our own, what are some of the most common pitfalls authors should avoid in world building? I think one of the biggest pitfalls in world building is not examining your own cultural biases and creating a world that's freighted with your lived experience, your, your cultural lived experience. I would say Game of Thrones is the biggest example of this. There is so much sexual violence in those shows and books. And the hand wavy excuse for this is that's just the way things were. Westeros isn't real. The Targaryens never existed. Nobody speaks High Valyrian. Dragons don't exist as far as we're aware. So George R. R. Martin elected to create a world where sexual violence is so prevalent. This was a choice, unconscious or not, biased or not. This was a choice that George R. R. Martin made. And when people are creating worlds, I think you have to examine that. Is there a reason in your world why sexual violence should work. If, if you're starting a world from scratch where no one's ever experienced this kind of assault, why are you introducing it? What is the point of introducing this kind of violence into your world? And I have written stories with sexual violence in them too, because it does exist in our world. And um, I would assume it would exist in other worlds too, because humans are garbage. But you have to, if you're putting something in a world, you have to realize that this is a choice you as the creator are making and you have to justify that within yourself and within the culture of the world. So don't just put things in your world because they exist in ours. And I actually, not to push my own book too hard, there's a whole chapter about hegemony and unconscious bias. And um, there's some exercises to help you stop and think about your own personal biases and how not to inflict them on the story you're telling. The other thing that I think writers need to take a, a look at, and this is, it's kind of the same thing. It's a little bit about cultural biases. Just take a look at how we name things, naming conventions here, because, you know, you can have a world where people eat deep fried tuber sticks and braid their hair starting at the crown of the head and kiss with tongues. But if you have a world with no France, then you can't call them French fries, French braids, or French kissing. <laughs> you have to call them something else, right? And that's that's something that I always, I'll be reading something and I'll, and then they'll say, and it was a French braid. And I'll go, I live in a world where France doesn't exist. There has to be a different word for this. <laughs> Perhaps a freedom braid. No. <laughs> oh, I nearly just choked on my coffee. <laughs> Yeah, so you get the mug to your mouth, and like now I will say it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I think that's all very strong advice. I, I know one of the earliest things I encountered in my writing, like when I was a teenager, was I realized a hundred percent of the characters in the worlds I was writing were only children. 
<laughs> I was like, because I'm an only child. And I was like, why would anyone even have siblings? Never occurred to me. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, well, and then, of course, now I've said that out loud. I'm like, I guess their population would be constantly dwindling. That could be interesting. Anyway, I'll write the uh, Planet of the Only Children uh, off mic. <laughs> but, but see, now I'm fascinated by that because my brain always goes to, okay, if this is the way that is, is that people are only allowed to have one child or are they only capable of having one child? And then if they're only allowed to have one child, you have to go back and look at the historical precedents for it. Are you going to make an allusion to China? Are you not? Are you, what is the cultural norm for here? Why just one? What happens if a second baby is born? Is it given to a couple that can't? Like, so my brain starts spinning out like dominoes or one of those, um, not a perpetual motion machine, one of those little Rube Goldberg. Yeah, my yeah. brain turns into a Rube Goldberg machine when someone introduces a concept and I start jumping back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 1,000 years. What did the emperor say this one time? What is the medical reason for this? Did the aliens impose this rule because of, like, for me, that's the fascinating thing of world building is taking one small nugget, one small concept, your starting point and going, okay, what's the starting point? Is it a phrase? Is it this good luck phrase that people say? Is it something that people say when a loved one has passed? Mm -hmm. um, is it the fact that everyone's an only child? How do you build an entire society that makes logical sense? And not everything has to work logically because the real world isn't logical. There are rules where you're like, what do you mean you can't walk around Kentucky with a ice cream cone in your back pocket? Where did this go? Oh, absolutely. But I do plan to get into that to a further question. So ah, sorry, sorry. You should apologize. This is a high crime. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Like I'm fascinated. The minute you said yeah. said that, my brain went. Pfft. What do you want to be kind of lazy and pull a Rick and Morty thing? Where like God, the writer is an only child, <laughs> therefore, like yeah. Anyway, also who are God's parents? As soon as I said that, um, but anyway, <laughs> how might an author choose between working out? most things in advance and discovering the world of their story as they write it is this purely personal taste you know what works for that person or are different approaches preferable for different kinds of stories do you feel i will never be able to tell you what the average way of writing a, a secondary world story is i <laughs> it's very it's interesting that you bring that up because um i'm in the middle of you're aware of it and uh, I can't give any details, but I'm in the middle of finalizing a deal with a company and um, approaching the deal and approaching the, uh, the number of books that they may want and what comes next. I've been expressing to author friends some um, concern. You know, what if I suck? What if I can't deliver what I said I'm going to deliver? They're asking me to work in a way that's counterintuitive to me because they want specific documents and they want specific, not promises, but like they want uh, like synopses and things like outlines yeah. and things like that. And I don't, I don't do that. Um, I have never, I am a pantser through and through, mm -hmm. uh, which is hilarious when you think that I'm peddling a world building book. And then I'm talking with friends who are, one's a video game writer and one's a, a middle grade writer. And both of them meticulously plot an outline. And I'm just going, I can't do it like that. And even them, the two of them do it completely different from one another. So I've, the more I talk to other writers, the more I can tell you with some kind of sandcastle 
on a beach when tide's coming in surety that there's no such thing as an average writer. And I couldn't, not a single one of us writes in the same order, the same way. Hmm. Um, I've sort of lost the plot. What was the question? Sure it is. I mean, I, I think that is a fair answer for it. And it's, it's, I figured, I felt myself like, yeah, the answer is the person has to figure out what works for them. But I frequently do see uh, younger writers posting in online groups and stuff where I, I fart around being like, ah, you know, basically asking that, like, how do, how do I choose between discovering as I go along or working everything out in advance? And of course you can say to them, well, you got to figure out what works for you. But then it's like, well, how do you figure that out? I guess just by writing, I guess just by doing it. <laughs> you know? well, I can tell you the way that I figured out how I like to write. And I can give you the answer about how I like to write and do I do my world building first and all of that. But I can tell you right now, if it wasn't for National Novel Writing Month, I would never have figured out how to write. Um, this is my 19th year doing NaNo. It's been running for 20 or 21, something like that. Um, I started almost right away back when it was a Yahoo group. And um, and I did it with a bunch of university friends. And the great thing about NaNo is that you have to sit down and write every day, or you have to dedicate a chunk on like a weekend or when between classes or something. 1,667 words a day. Doesn't seem like a lot. For me, that's one sixth of a chapter because my chapters tend to be about five to 6,000 words. It's not that much in terms of storytelling. But what it teaches you is habit. What it teaches you is where you need to sit every day, where you can write from. I have learned I cannot write on the subway or in cafes, but I can write at my desk at work on my lunch hour or at my desk at home. But I cannot write in my kitchen on my kitchen table because then I will look at the pile of dirty dishes and I will get distracted. So I have learned habits on like my physical habits of how to write, but it also has taught me where I start my stories. So do I need to prep world building for three months before I sit down November 1st? No, I'm not that kind of person. If I outline and I know how the book ends, before I even start writing the book, I'm bored already and I stop writing it because I know what happens. Uh, for me, writing is discovery. For other people, writing is following a plan. So, so Nano has really served me as a writer. And even the years where I didn't finish it's less to me about the word count and more about dedicating and carving out that time to figure out who I am as a writer and what this book needs. And then the other thing is just, yeah, practice, 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 practice. So I wrote crap tons of fanfic, absolute unbelievable volumes of fanfic. Uh, if I were to print out all the fanfic I wrote between 1991 and now, because I haven't stopped, um, probably well over a million pages oh, i wouldn't be surprised wow so yeah that kind of brings us to the next question i confess i myself have a writing project i've been pecking at for quite a while one whose subject matter seems to demand quite a bit of world building but there are times where i feel lost and find myself wondering if i didn't start in the wrong place if i can even remember where i started in the first place how would you advise creators to find their starting point with world building and to keep focused in the long run, especially when projects can stretch out over several years, depending on how they fit into your life? Well, I think addressing your specific 
issue, Oliver, is that you're so deep in the mud that you don't remember what the sky looks like. I would, first off, I'd take a week off and then go back and try to find my very first set of notes. Where are those notes? What, what was that moment that made you go, oh, I like this? Like, is it the first draft of a short story that you wrote with these characters? Is it um, a recording of a table read? Because I, I know that you were working on a, um, a script version of this story for a bit. I would go back right now and try to find what the initial impetus was. And then if you have to, not trash, nothing is trash. You throw nothing in the garbage as a writer. Um, I actually have a file labeled morgue that I put things I delete into so that I can then Frankenstein them later into a different book or a different, you know, if I'm like, oh, I really love that, that scene, but I have to kill this darling into the morgue it goes. Take a step back, look at what that original impetus was and decide whether what you're doing right now is serving that. And what I mean by serving that is if you think of, there's this great interview with Peter Jackson where people say, why did you cut Tom Bombadil from Lord of the Rings? And he says, listen, I know he's a fan favorite. I know people wanted the character. I know people, we, we worked on the designs a little bit, but here's the thing. When you're taking something as sprawling and epic and frankly unfocused as Tolkien's work, and I just mean unfocused in that, that there's, there's no single real protagonist in the books mm -hmm. and you're turning them into a film, you have to decide who the protagonists are. And in this case, the protagonists are Frodo and Aragorn. And anything that does not serve those two characters' stories is excessive and cuttable. And unfortunately, Tom Bombadil, while entertaining, does nothing to further the plot of either of those two characters' stories. It doesn't destroy the ring, and it doesn't put uh, uh, Strider on the throne of Gondor. And anything that doesn't do that goes in the morgue. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I mean about serving the plot and serving the prose. So if you're finding yourself overwhelmed as a writer, I would go back to what your original starting point was. What was your first, <laughs> you can't see the gesture I'm making, but it, it it's a gesture of me pulling my own heart out and throwing it into the <laughs> world. If you can't find what that was, go back to what that was and then look at what you've created and, and maybe push aside everything that's not serving that for now. Now, in terms of finding that gesture of heart pulled from chest, thrown into the world, um, that's a matter of, of where the idea for the story came from. Like the world building for Triptych for me was one single sentence, which is now no longer in the book, but one single sentence, which was there's a UFO in my strawberry patch. And I thought, okay, that's, that's a hell of an opening line. And for a very long time, it was the opening line of the book. How did the UFO get there? What is happening? Okay. And then that's when your brain does the Rube Goldberg machine and you, and you go back and back and back and you figure out the whole world around that one thing. Um, so whatever it is that is making you want to write this story, is it a character who like walked into your head fully formed and was like, yo, I want to tell you a story. Um, or is it that you realize that you only write about only children. So now you want to write a world about only children. 
or maybe you like for me the nine tenths the novel i'm still querying um but it's down to 130,000 words now yeah. agonizingly so but it's down to 130,000 words now. <laughs> it was 178 last time we spoke yeah <laughs> um, uh, the impetus for that one was what if and i'm trying to remember i was i was reading about the um, Serpent Behind the Falls at Niagara Falls, and I was reading about the Oneagra and the lost cultures of the indigenous people of this area that I live in. And I thought about settlers and empire building, and it kind of reminded me of like really greedy, voracious dragons. And I thought, well, what if that's what it is? That what if, what if I created a world where empire builders are dragons? What if the monarchs are dragons and they're trying to hoard Earth's wealth? What are they hoarding? And I was like, well, jewels and gems and things like that, but minerals and stones of value don't translate from culture to culture to culture. Like, would a Maori dragon give a shit about emeralds? Would an Aztec dragon care about gold the way a Spanish dragon would? the way a, a British dragon would. Well, historically speaking, no, not really. What different cultures value is different. What different cultures say is a treasure are different. So what's the one universal that all these dragons have to have in order to, to be building competing empires? What is the treasure? What is the wealth? Aha, people. People are the world's greatest resource. So I have now a world where Dragons are monarchs and empire builders, and humans are what they're trying to collect. So they're trying to have the biggest hoard of humans. And I was like, all right, so there's the starting point of my story. And from there, I could build a more logical world. And of course, it was really fun when I realized, okay, so then who's my protagonist? Let's make it let's let's do a world a war of 1812 soldier because the war of 1812 was about territory and attrition. Let's have this soldier be British, came to the Canadian colonies, the dragon has now stayed behind and he's building a horde in Canada. All right, because he's a dragon, let's talk about world building. What would have happened? Here's where I can start playing with history. Like what would have happened differently? If you have royalty, you have dragons. If you have no royalty, if you're a republic, you're led by a human. Well, a human and a dragon meeting on the battlefield, the dragon's going to win. So in the War of 1812, the Americans had no king, so they had no dragons. The Canadians, the British, had dragons. So in reality, the War of 1812 was a stalemate. And in my book, Canada absolutely trounced the Americans. And my dragon was the match that lit the presidential mansion on fire. So it's things like that where you can go in, like I live near Castle Frank or the, the site where Castle Frank used to be, which is a very fancy name for what was just a very fancy log cabin. And in my, uh, built by Governor, Lieutenant Governor John Graves Simcoe. In reality, it burned down. In my book, it never did because why would a dragon's home ever be made of wood? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so it all spirals out from that first point. That, that's an example of a starting point, right? Like you can yeah. come up with a concept, you can come up with a person and then be like, okay, how do I 
support this story in the most logical way possible. And yeah, I have notes and notes and notes and notes of world building to go with this. But a lot of what I did was I was like, okay, I've decided who this character is. I've decided the broad strokes of this world. I'm just going to start writing it. And every time I come up to a logical fallacy or an issue or something I need to decide, I stop and I sit back and I make notes. And if that means you have to go back and rewrite what you've already rewritten, it doesn't matter. This is writing. Yeah. yeah. Neil Gaiman says, write everything you know in the first draft. In the second draft, go back and make it look like you knew what you were talking about the whole time. Yeah, well, writing is editing, to, to go back to that old saw, uh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I, yeah no, I like that. I like that finding what was the thing that made you passionate in the first place, and if you're losing focus, go back to it kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we've been talking a lot about world building, and we will talk more about it, but in the book, you used what I thought was a really great term, culture building. Could you give us a brief definition and talk a little bit about how culture building might inform character and story? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to talk about Joseph Campbell, and I know that we as writers have agreed that uh, he is not the be-all and end-all, um, and that his hero's journey is applicable to only some kinds of stories and is not universal and is not monolith. But I'm going to use the hero's journey because it's a very usable shorthand. Um, so when you have the hero's journey, everyone starts at uh, home, and then we'll just talk about Star Wars because this is the most famous example of it. Luke Skywalker at home on the farm, um, living his life, uh, finds a droid. The droid says that he needs to leave home. And this is, this is the plot, right? The farm boy leaves home, um, is reluctant to go at first and then is excited to go, meets the master, the Teresius, the Jedi master, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, pulled into a world, does all these amazing things, and then returns home at the end of it. Now, Luke doesn't really return home at the end of it, but, you know, Ray does, so we'll say the same. Mm -hmm. um, this is the story that, that a lot of people tell. Hero leaves home, sees the world, saves the world, returns home changed. That home culture that the person comes from is going to inform so much of how your character interacts and behaves with the outside world, which is why I think it's very important to establish um, home culture as, as thoroughly and solidly as you can, because then when you have this foundation of what your character thinks and believes, and you put them out into the world and that foundation is cracked and shaken, that there's great conflict and there's great potential for story there. So if you can imagine what if Luke Skywalker was raised to believe the Empire is right. At the beginning of the film, he's already like, I want to join the Rebels. I want to go with Wedge and shoot some bad guys out of the sky. Like he's already on the side of the rebellion. But what if he wasn't? What if he was raised Darth Vader's son? What if he was raised? What if Padme didn't die? What, like, imagine how that would change the story especially if it, it had the same story path that luke had to kill his kill the emperor and he had to head the rebellion and he had to save the universe how what would how would his choices have been different if he started the story believing the empire was correct mm. um and that's sort of what i mean about culture building because the place that your person, that your protagonist comes from is the place 
that is directly challenged every time the protagonist changes or evolves or comes up against something else. So what you create for their home culture is going to inform everything about them, their habits, how they dress, what they say, what they believe, how they take their tea. I mean, if you live in a world where sugar is only for the elites, then you're not going to prefer your tea with sugar, are you? Uh, you're going to prefer it with honey or with nothing at all, or you only drink fruit teas because they're already sweet to begin with. So that's what I mean about culture building is like, you have to give your protagonist a solid base of where they come from. Okay, George R. R. Martin, we have a world where sexual violence is prevalent. Explain to me why in the home culture, give me a reason why in the home culture, why these people believe this, why Daenerys puts up with this, why Sansa Stark doesn't just cut off Joffrey's junk. Explain it to me. Um, and once you have that solid explanation of the culture, you can tell the rest of the story going forward from that. And the other reason for it is really just set dressing, but in a cool way. So going back to Star Wars, Shauna Triptych put the... Um, the fish guys in the Mandalorian in Irish cable knit sweaters. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh my God, wh why? But when you think of the culture building reason behind that, it's like, oh, that's actually very clever because cable knit sweaters were originally invented so that a body left in the ocean gets pretty unrecognizable after a while. Yeah. But if your family's specific pattern of cable knit, you know, if, if you did this kind of half, half loop stitch and they do this sort of Celtic cross, when a body is brought back to town, you know whose corpse that is. That's why cable knit sweaters exist. I mean, to keep the sailors warm, yeah. but then to use as a dog tag when they're dead. So the fact that you have these fish guys who are living their lives out on the ocean. Yeah, of course, they're probably going to have some cable knit sweater analogy. Why not? I think that's really clever culture building. And it gives you a look at, and, and this is what I'm saying about the Rube Goldberg machine. Then you can start inferring things past that. Okay, if these fish guys wear cable knit sweaters, how often do they die at sea? What are their funeral rituals like? Why are they at sea for so long that their wives might not recognize them when they come back or their spouses? I yeah. want to say that they're heterosexual, but you know what I mean? So that's the importance of, of culture. And I think a really great example of this is if you watch Howl's Moving Castle, the uh, Ghibli film, yeah. you can look around and see that this is a nation at war, but they never say that we're at war until like two thirds of the way through the film. And now that was kind of in the books, but not really. There was talk of a pending war in this other nation over there because that's not what the books are about. Um, the books are it, all the same characters, all the same setting, different thesis to the book, if that makes sense. But I think it's really clever when you look at, at Howl's Moving Castle because there are all of these indications that market chipping is a town that could be under siege at any moment, but they never say it. And that's the culture, that's the flags, that's the soldiers, that's the feast day, that's the absolute abandon with which the soldiers prey on young women. It's the way that Howell is desperate to not report to the palace. And they don't say it till halfway through the film. He doesn't want to report to the palace because he doesn't want to go to war. 
but we just know that he doesn't want to report to the palace. But you can infer that it's because he doesn't want to go to war because we can see this is a culture preparing for war. Yeah, nice. I mean, then we come right back to, again, uh, the classic show, don't tell. Uh, planning everything out in the world of a story or a series of stories, I think, has a soothing quality where the writer can make a world where, at least from their point of view, everything makes sense. Everything clicks together with clear causes and effects. But as you say in the book, and we started to touch upon earlier, cultures, like the writing process, can be messy, contradictory, illogical, frustrating, and unfair. How would you, if you wanted to put a bit of this messy, contradictory, illogical, frustrating, and unfair element into a culture that you are building entirely out of your choices, you know, how would you, how would you, how do you intentionally make something make no sense in a way that makes sense? I always think of the people who benefit from the rule or the law or the taboo, and then the people who are deliberately or hatefully not benefited by it. And how does it look on the surface like it's fair, but then it isn't. So the example I give often is speeding tickets. Mm. Um, in North America, speeding tickets are a set price. Um, and if it's a thousand dollars and you're working minimum wage and your car is a piece of crap and you get pulled over for speeding because you're late to work, a thousand dollars is your rent and you are effed. Yeah. If you're rich and you're joyriding and you're street racing and you get pulled over and it's a thousand dollars, you just pull that out of your pocket and hand it to the cop and move on. So it's not a penalty. It's a, you know, or if you think of a parking ticket, you parked in the wrong spot and your car was towed, and you're under the poverty line, you're never getting that car back because you can't you can't afford to pay the impound fee, which will affect your ability to go to work, which means you're going to lose your job, which means you're going to spiral into poverty. But if you're rich, going to pick up your car from impound or going to get your chauffeur to pick up your car from impound is nothing. It's just like paying the $20 parking fee downtown. It, it's just your car got parked somewhere else. It's, it's nothing. It means nothing. But in other countries, there's specifically some Scandinavian countries, your speeding fine or your parking fine uh, is in direct relation to how much money you make. So it's, you know, 0.4% of what you made that month. So if you're poor, if you're below the par poverty line, maybe it's $5. But if you make hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, maybe it's $50,000. So it's an equally distributed penalty. And it's great for, you know, the government because then they got $50,000 that they can go, you know, fill some potholes with. So I always sort of think of that when I'm making up these cultural rules and I'm making up things like table manners and um, idioms and phrases that people say. How are the most privileged people in this society affected by this rule, law, taboo, tradition? How are the least privileged people? And that's a good way to sort of build in contradictions and build in resentment and build in things that don't work. Because then when you make up a rule as a writer and you think about how it affects two separate people, then you can think about how stupid the rule is yeah. and how it could be made better how it could be more logical, or why is it um, crystallized at the stupid level? Why, why can't you walk through Kentucky with an ice cream cone in your pocket? I'm dying to know. <laughs> I like that, yeah, because I think at the end of the day, there is some cause and effect behind everything. And so, generally speaking, yeah, when we think something's random or stupid or doesn't make sense, it's just because we don't know what that cause is. I think of how often you hear about big companies doing things that sound really stupid and sure once in a while it's because there's an idiot at the helm 
but it tends to be actually that there is some short-term profit-minded thinking behind whatever they're doing. Uh, this came up in discussing publishers and promotion uh, in my last interview mm-hmm. regarding you know, the confusing thing where publishers will invest heavily in a writer right up to the point of the book coming out and then mysteriously leave them to completely flounder with promotion. Uh, you know, then I think of like the plot to the producers, you know, let's make a play that fails because weirdly it turns out we're profitable. <laughs> you know, it sounds stupid, but there's a, there's a, you know, a reason behind it. Right. So yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's something I've been very, I mean, oh, I, I love all my babies, all my questions, but uh, this is what I was very like, Oh, I, I want to hear what she says. A little extra. My favorite science fiction author is William Gibson. And my favorite books by him are his Blue Ant trilogy. For those who don't know, funny enough, each book in that trilogy is set the year it was published, as it was Gibson's experiment with applying what he called the science fiction toolkit to real life. We think of world building primarily in the context of genre writing, you know, sci-fi fantasy in particular. How might an author benefit by applying some or all of the world building toolkit to a story set in our own contemporary world? Good question. (laughs) Um, every author, no matter what genre they're writing in and what era they're writing it in is world building. If someone says that, okay, let's take Bridgerton, for example, it's been world built. And yes, the, the Netflix adaptation is extremely world built, but the original books by Julia Quinn are world built as well, because there was never a Duke of Hastings. Hastings has never been a duchy, and therefore there has never been a Duke of Hastings world building. So the minute she introduced the Duke of Hastings, and I know this because I looked it up, I was like, I've never heard Hastings as a peerage. And then I looked it up and was like, oh, oh, it's fake. Okay, cool. That's fine. I, as a romance writer, understand the trope of there being more (laughs) barons, earls, counts, lords, dukes, in this fictional version of England that Romance Landia has created, then there actually are hamlets for them to be the Duke of. But that's a trope of the genre that I love. We just have as many peers as we need so that every girl gets her husband. So just that, introducing the Duke of Hastings, that's world building. You've created a fake duchy. Um, so now you have geography of where Hastings is um, you've created uh, fake architecture. The minute you describe the estate or the uh, house, you've invented a house and people don't realize that they're world building when they're doing that. The Bridgertons are not real. The Featheringtons are not real. Simon Bassett is not real. So creating the Featherington home opposite the Bridgerton home and the different architectural styles that they've chosen tell a lot about who those characters are. So on the page, Julia Quinn did a lot of world building. World building light because sprinkling, because she's based a lot on real life, but world building nonetheless. And then of course, the Netflix adaptation took that to the extreme because the minute we have show don't tell, you have to give us the difference between the the new money family and the old money family. And they do it quite brilliantly. There's, um, I I will give you the link later to link below, but there's this great uh, series on YouTube of architects who look at 
fictional buildings and tell you what you should know, the secrets the designers are telling you about these people based on the architecture. And the one on Bridgerton is very fascinating, especially since, and I noticed this, but I couldn't figure out why it looked wrong. When they do Hastings House in uh, London, it's clearly the back of somebody's house, but they filmed it for the establishing shots as if it's the front of somebody's house, which is weird. Why is Simon Bassett's guests going in the back? But when you look at the Bridgerton house, it's old build, it's red brick, it's quintessentially London. Uh, it's covered with established vines, not just new ones, but like thick trunked established vines. These are people who've been here. There are clearly additions in the wings because the stonework is different. And then you look at the Featherington's house and it's new and it's the, the fashionable bath sandstone that really only came into prominence when Beau Brummel started building with it in Bath. And it's the Palladian architecture. It is painfully trendy when you look at the Featherington house. And that's world building. Those are choices that maybe not everyone knows because they haven't studied Regency romance the way I have, because I'm writing a series set in the Regency era. But when you look at those sorts of things, even the subtle clues of like the established vines versus the, the fresh stone, it tells you how new or established these buildings are. So that's world building. Those are choices that somebody made to tell story, in this case, visually. And that's beautiful world building that supports the narrative. So yeah, I think it's very important for writers of any genre to take a look at the world as it is and figure out how they can shift things to support the culture they're inventing. Hmm. So as I recall, this began uh, your book as a workshop that you did quite a bit. Yeah. So I, I guess about maybe almost a decade ago, when I first started doing readings and things like that, as a writer, especially as an SFF writer, you get asked to do readings, but then you get asked to do talks. And a lot of it would be like, where do you get your ideas from? And tell us, tell us how you came up with this world. So one of the workshops I ended up developing was at first an hour and then three hour workshops with this thick handout and PowerPoint that just helped take people through thought processes. So talking about hegemony, talking about cultural bias, talking about being careful not to write from your own lived perspective or taking elements of your own lived perspective, because of course, writers write themselves over and over again, taking elements of your lived perspective, but finding a way to translate them into this new culture and then trying to find ways not to info dump or spoon feed your writers, but to tell an engaging lush world where so much information gets to your readers without you having to, you know, shove it in their faces. And that was that that did well. But then the pandemic happened and I lost that stream of revenue and I stopped doing those presentations live. And I did it a couple of times via Zoom. And therefore, because it wasn't live, I had to and I couldn't like stop and take questions and have real thick conversations, which is my favorite part of doing this workshop, I enhanced the handout that went with it. And then at one point I did have the handout for sale for like $10 on my website, but people weren't interested in it because it was just a list of questions that you downloaded in a PDF. And 
some of the feedback I got about that and definitely some of the feedback I got from other writers who had been looking forward to the workshop before it was canceled was they're missing the conversation aspect of it. So I decided to write a book that is basically in conversation with the person who's reading it and is filled with places where you can stop and actually write things right there on the page. So for me, the point of putting this book together was to try to mimic the workshop experience by explaining as thoroughly as I could. And it, like it's it's 100 pages of explanation before you even get to the questions. So it's a pretty thorough, at least to my mind, explanation of what world and culture building is and how to approach it as a complete human being. And then, yeah, there's space. There's well over, I think, 200 questions that should just help get your brain, stretch your brain into places that you wouldn't normally choose to stretch your brain. And whether you use that answer that you put on that page in your book or not, that's the thing about one of these books. For me, when I world build, I try to do it all in one place. So then I can take that book and put it in a drawer and forget it existed as a textbook and just write the story. But then I have all the answers right there if I need them. But not having it on the desktop or in my hand at all times, I'm not feeling obligated to use all the information I put in it. So the hope with this book is that you answer all the questions, you fill the book with all the information, and then you check it in the corner. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, you know everything and you need to infuse that into the prose. I like it. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed going through uh, the PDF you sent me. And I think that first 100 pages of, uh, sort of discussion, you found a very good tone between instructional and conversational. I felt like I was being form but not yeah yeah no, I, I really i really dig it and uh, i think other people will too to wrap this up why don't we have one last question mm -hmm. teaching is a great way to learn about a subject and refine your thoughts about it what would you say improved about your own approach to world building comparing when you gave your first talk on the subject you know the first time you did the workshop to how you feel about it now with the book coming out i've become a lot more self-investigative uh when it comes to my own biases. I think I've become more aware of the humans that I'm addressing in the room. I've become more aware of the terminology that I use, how some phrases could be hurtful. I think for me in teaching this over and over again, and even writing the textbook made me have to step back and be like, wait a minute, is that a cultural assumption that I have been freighted with based on my hegemonic upbringing? Or is that a universal truth? And I find that it's made me, investigating world building has made me investigate my own culture and my own biases, and it's made me a better person. Or at least it's helped me move further down the path of striving to become a better person. Oh, I like that. Also, you gave me the first sentence of my new book. It is universal truth that all people are only children. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this is lovely. Is only. <laughs> this is lovely. Thank you so much for returning to the show to discuss uh, the subject, which I can't believe I haven't really touched upon that much. Uh, this many episodes deep. Where can people pick up your book? And find you online in general. Okay, so here's the fun thing about this book because it's a world because it's a workbook and you're meant to write in it. It's not actually available as an ebook. I've only released it as a paperback. Uh, so just the regular places, Chapters in Indigo, Amazon Book Depository, your local indie. Um, if you DM me for the ISBN number, I'm happy to give it to you, but it's also listed on the Amazon listing so you can get the ISBN 
number from there and then take it to your local mom and pop and they can order it based on the ISBN number. But I also do have a PDF of the book for sale only on my website. So if you go to jmfry.net backslash books and click publisher, that will take you, or I think I have publisher or ebook. I think I have two links to the same place. Um, that will take you to where you can download the PDF and then you can just print it out for yourself. Warning, it's 388 pages and you can print it out for yourself and use it yourself that way. Okay, great. Well, I will put all of those links in the show notes, listener. And if you look at this episode on the website, you'll see a nice big graphic of the cover. You can just go honk and click on that, and it'll take you to just the site and where you can find all those links to purchase. All right, well, this was really lovely, Jess, and I'm sure we'll find reason to have you back on again. Thank you so much for uh, your time. Thank you. And I'm back without sounding like I'm at the bottom of a well or there was a woodpecker or whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. So annoying when that happens, but re-recording my entire half of the interview, not really an option. Anyway, here's that special news. I will most likely, I'm recording this on December 2nd, so there's still time for my plans to change, I suppose, but it's looking like I will be taking a month off of putting out episodes of the podcast, so that's going to be January, no new episodes, most likely. I will try to put out some bonus stuff on the Patreon, and in fact, getting a little caught up on that is one of the reasons I want to take this break. It's also because I really need to focus my energies on some exciting opportunities that if they pay off uh, related to my writing career, I'll talk about them here. And one of them that I will definitely talk about, whether it succeeds or fails, although gosh, I hope it succeeds, will be the Kickstarter for issues one and two of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. That is going to take place over the month of February, if all goes according to plan. At this point, I've just about filled out the table of contents for both issues with authors and artists. And oh my goodness, you know, there's all these returning champions from issue zero that you enjoyed, but there's also a whole bunch of new people. There'd have to be, right? I'm filling out two different issues. Gosh, I wish it wasn't way too early to tell who they are, but I will be telling who they are. So keep an eye on the New Edge Sword and Sorcery, you know, Twitter, as long as Twitter is around, Facebook, Instagram, that kind of thing for sneak peek announcements and so on over the month of January. I'll link those in the description for the podcast. Also, I really suggest following the mailing list, which comes out super infrequently. We've literally sent out one email just to say, hey, issue zero is around. We're going to send out like a couple more around the Kickstarter and then shut up again until this stuff's available later. So yeah. It's a good way to get in on the first day of the Kickstarter when only people who get the physical tiers on that day will get an exclusive bookmark with original art that will only ever be seen on that bookmark. It will never be published online. It will never be given away or recycled or reused in anything else ever again. Also, this all means that you can look forward to me doing an episode where I will break down the whole process of the Kickstarter and how I prepared for it and how the post-Kickstarter thing will go if we fund, which gosh, I hope we do. Because yeah, now I know the authors and artists pretty much that are going to be involved and what they're going to be writing in a lot of cases. It's like, oh, I want to read this magazine so bad. <laughs> okay, so I hope you all have a lovely holiday or have had a lovely holiday. I don't know when you're listening to this and I hope I have a good holiday. Hope, 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 holiday, holiday, holiday. Thanks for listening. And yep, that's the show. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. For now, look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Jess. And I'll see you soon.